Welcome to the Float Your Boat podcast about how everyday people created their road to success. The highs, the lows, pitfalls and potholes and how they overcame it all. And now, here are your hosts. Welcome everyone to another episode of Float Your Boat. And I'm very excited today, Brett. You're always excited, George. I'm I'm super excited today because I have a a mate of mine here and he's a, I I would best describe him as a lovable rogue. He's been (laughs) into everything. He's got quite a few stories to tell. He's he's as funny as all hell, or as all get out. And um, if anyone encapsulates the idea of doing things for fun and 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 uh, and, and uh, trying to make themselves happy, it's got to be this guy here. So um, I'd like to introduce my my good mate Stuart King. I'll call you Stu. Hello, gentlemen. Hi, Lovely Stuart. to see you. No, I'm nice really good. You. Thanks, Brett. Nice to meet you too. Thank you, George, for that uh, stellar. Introduction. It was, it was pretty good, and the best part about that is he said that you're funny instead of him saying I'm funny. <laughs> I'm not funny. I know. Everyone in my family tells me I'm not funny. Oh. <laughs> every day, in fact, every night, every night around the dinner table. Don't give up your day job and say so. <laughs> very, very disappointing. I think you can always tell when you're in the room, though, George, because your laughter, your laughter is there, and you have got this unique laugh. It's <laughs> this sort of starts from down your boots and comes all the way up. It's fantastic. Yeah. Yes, it does. It does indeed. I like, and, yeah. and I have this terrible habit of laughing at my own lame jokes. <laughs> and as I said to you before, Stu, you know, uh, George, as you know, George's um, warehouse is at Marrickville and the planes yes. fly over. Yes. And the other day the airport called up and said, um, can you turn George down? We can't hear the jets landing. <laughs> <laughs> Enough about me. Now Why you don't talk you about, about me. me. <laughs> no, you, no, I'll talk about me. I, I'm OK with that. Let's, uh, Stu... Where do we start? With? Well, I read your bio, well, and, and it, it's it's a, it's there's so much to talk about. But I think where we should start is at the beginning. Tell us a bit about your childhood. Well, I grew up in a, in a Harry Potter house uh, really? in uh, Middle England, uh, born in a little place called Shoreham by Sea. I didn't live in a cupboard under the stairs, but you know, I let, we had a family of three kids. It was a typical sort of nuclear British family. My father was an engineer working for Ford. And um, it was a good life, you know. And um, in about, when I was about six or seven, we moved up to Chelmsford in Essex and lived in a little village called Great Baddo, you know. And it's, the, the sheer name evokes yeah. Village Green and, yeah. you know, this sort of idyllic setting. It was a lovely time. Uh, and then um, uh, things started to turn for the, the British economy. It was before... The uh, the EU and you know we uh, it, was a, it was a it was a treat to have lamb for example and all these sorts of things and I, as a young kid I started to observe this and I, I remember my folks had a huge freezer the size of a car you know and then once a year that this butcher would arrive in a truck and half a cow would come not literally but you know mm. packaged up <laughs> in, in, into the kitchen and my mum and dad would spend the next day sucking the air of these freezer bags and turning green before they put the <laughs> before they put the meat in the freezer and that's how they fed us you know they they bought their meat in bulk because it was it was the only way they could afford it right. anyway um my father started to see a bit of a um pattern emerging in the UK and thought oh maybe there's a better way for us as a family and so he um heard about Ford Australia recruiting engineers and so he applied and 
as a as a young boy, I was sort of a passenger to this, and we did have a family conference, and and it sort of went a bit like this: "Oh, we're going to Australia," and you know, my view was, oh, "I'm not sure where that is, but I know it's a long way away, yeah. and it's in the southern hemisphere." And I knew that much about geography, um, but it was kind of far to complete. We were going, so the next part of that story was we went to Australia House in London. And I never forget it because we we arrived on a spring spring morning, and there was all these combi vans parked out the front, you know, of, of expat Aussies selling their combis to the next expat Aussies that were arriving. Yeah. And then they they took us into this room and and um, they said, "Now we want to tell you about Australia." And I kid you not, without a word of a lie, they showed us a black and white Chips Rafferty movie. <laughs> Definitely Australia. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. and it showed street. us kangaroos hopping down a street. And um, I was kind of... What year was that? That was 1973. Wow. And I, still yeah, doing it coming there. from a Harry Potter <laughs> house... I showed you a Basil McKenzie movie. Yeah, yeah. Well, I saw that too. I thought, oh, that rings a bell. But um, anyway, so we, we then uh, went into this uh, Ford Australia recruiting program. And we arrived... Uh, I never forget it. We left in February of '74, middle of winter in the UK, and we arrived, the first port of call in Australia was Darwin, and it was 46 degrees, bucking down rain, and we had to get off the plane down steps onto the tarmac. And the first Australians that I recognised as being Australians were these guys in white shorts and white t-shirts and white long socks and white shoes, walking down the inside of the aircraft with aerosol cans, spraying for bugs, and I thought they're trying to kill us <laughs> before we before we've even hit immigration. They're trying to keep us out, you know. So, uh, and then we walked down these stairs, and we we're all in our winter woolies, and it was so hot in here. It was raining, and there were no umbrellas, and people were just fainting. On the, on the, and there's people coming out with stretchers in more white shirts and white shorts, <laughs> carrying people into the into the into the building. Well, was that the time you discovered bathtubs? Yeah, yeah, that's right. Well, that's the, I discovered showers. Yeah. <laughs> so, so then, uh, you know, then we settled in Geelong, in Victoria, and uh, my father went to work in Ford, and life progressed as you as we had experience as a middle income sort of family. You know, it was quite good. Yeah, I understand. One of your first experiences at school was um, uh, quite a quite an interesting exchange with the yeah. you, the fellow who asked you for something. Oh, yeah. Look, it was. I thought coming to Australia I, it would be a cinch. I thought shared culture, shared language, it would be easy. Right? <clears throat> How wrong could I be? You know, the first day of school, my brother and I were dressed in our school uniform waiting on the, on the medium strip at a bus stop. And, you know, I mean, I'm, a, I'm a teenager, I'm 13. And, you know, I wasn't quite attuned into diversity as I, as I am now in adulthood. And um, I was uncertain of, of homosexuality and, you know, I wasn't sure about it. And there's all this sort of talk in my circle about it. And something wasn't quite, you know, um, expected when I was confronted with it. I was, I was very uncomfortable with it anyway. So in the UK, the slang word for um, a gay person was uh, bender. You know, because obviously. So my brother and I are standing at the bus stop, and this bus pulls up, and all over the side of the bus is the word Bender's Busways. <laughs> and he and I look at each other, and I said, Oh my God, 
And the door the door opened up and this fantastically gay, bright driver said, Hello boys, come on in. <laughs> and, well, and in unison my brother and I said, No, it's okay, thanks, mate, we'll get the next one. <laughs> anyway, so, so we were late to we were late to school on our first day. I guess they were benders all morning. <laughs> <laughs> and the second one was the benders on the yeah. So yeah, but we you know, we got used to that pretty quickly and, and caught the bus. But then um in the same week, I was in this maths class, and uh, it was quiet. You know, we we're learning something about trigonometry and something really interesting. And and uh, my classmate, my new classmate, leaned over and asked me something under a sort of whispered voice. He said, "You know, have you got any Jurex?" Now, as a young English teenager, Jurex was a condom. It was a brand of condom. And I, I looked at him and said, "What? You were in a maths class. What are you asking me?" For this boy, you know, he said, oh, I'm on sticky tape. <laughs> so, oh. so I kept making these mistakes. You know, I got asked to go to a dance, and I thought it was a disco, because that's what I was used to in the UK. Right. Mm-hmm. I got picked up. I was dressed in my disco gear, standing outside my new house, and along comes the Kingswood. And my mates were just gobsmacked, because they were in the Miller shirt, golden breed Miller shirts, and the jeans. They just opened the door said, they wanted they didn't want to be seen with me in the street, so they just opened the door and the car was still moving. They said, Get in What are you why are you dressed like that? What so you I was I was in disco gear, I was in the I was in the full coloured platform leather shoes and staggers jeans and you know, I was the Saturday night fever. Like a bender. <laughs> staggers jeans. Staggers jeans, do you remember that? that? They, 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 they flared yeah, from they the hip. Oh, and we, we went to this, um, uh, I described it as a hut on stilts in, right. the, in the paddock out back of Geelong. And there was a square dance. And I walked in there and the guys, it was so funny because all the boys were on the left-hand side of the shed and all the girls on the right-hand side of the shed. And I looked up at the stage and there's this list of phrases and one of them was Pride of Erin. And I said to my mate, I said, who's Erin? <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, long story short, mm. I kept making these fundamental errors and it wasn't easy for us as a family to, to settle in. So let's fast forward to your first job. Yeah, well, um, my first job was with police force in Victoria and, you know, I wanted to leave school and earn money and my father said, you can't leave school until you get a job. So he helped me apply. Anyway, I joined the joined this force, and for me it was very exciting. It was um, something I fitted into very well, very easily, and quickly. It was like a big family, and you know, a lot of young guys having fun. And um, but of course, it came with its challenges. And although the basic training prepared you in basic things like the law and you know arrest powers and all those sorts of things, you know, didn't actually prepare you emotionally for the journey of being a young cop. So I made a decision to go wherever the work was and, and I wanted to be in a metro area uh, where I'd experience a whole gambit of policing. Mm. So, you know, I, I, was, I was blooded very quickly. I remember uh, dry, as, as you start out, it's like a, a copy room guy, you know, you sort of move the paper around. I used to go down the road and buy Maccas for the sergeant and things like that. Right, and that was right. a driver for the duty officer. But I remember the second or third week I was driving this particular officer and he got a call to a, a flat where there was a suspected person who died inside. And we couldn't get in, but there was a window open. So he said, he said right, young bloke, in you go. And I went in there and I experienced my first dead person. 
and for me that was a kind of, it was just me and this, and this man in the room and I remember looking at him thinking wow this is, it was kind of surreal mm. and there was you could tell there was obviously there's no life in this person but so that that impacted on my my prism on how I was going to view life and participate in life from that point forward right. so I opened up the door and the undertakers came in and and that, that was that particular job. But then, of course, I went on this, this journey for the next three or four years uh, as a young man in this world that stripped back and it was a ringside seat into uh, life. Mm. Good and bad. Good and bad. You know, I had some fantastic fun times and I had some really challenging times. I could tell you so many stories would be here for a day, you know, good and bad. But there, there was a couple of... I wanted to share with you, which showed the juxtaposition of policing yep. for, for people. And this was when I was uh, 19, 20. Yep. Um, you know, uh, I was working in this in this busy area called Proran, which is just outside St Kilda, outside Melbourne. And on a Sunday morning, usually a quiet time, we'd grab their coffee and we got a police uh, radio call saying that a mother had rung, concerned about her daughter who was supposed to be at her house for dinner on the Friday night. She had a history of mental illness and was on medication. She was really concerned about it. So we got the address and we went around to the flat and I looked in through the, through the front door, couldn't see anything, so I went around the back door and I could see in through the window that she was on the, on the floor, unconscious and rapid breathing. So I thought, well, that's, she's in a bad way. So uh, made a split decision um, when we forced entry. We kicked the door in to actually get to her and then we made a quick assessment and while we are making the assessment of her she arrested and so we called the ambulance but we had to perform CPR on her while we were waiting for the ambulance and it was quite a messy affair she'd, she'd taken an overdose of tablets so she was a lot of mess and stuff around her mouth and mm. it was quite unpleasant and we didn't have masks in those days mm. you know we had to clear all that away and give her mouth to mouth and, and CPR well CPR for 10 minutes is a long time it was quite exhausting. Heavy going, though. Heavy going, and she, she came back, and then, um, and then she'd, you know, she'd um, be ill, and then she'd go into rest again. So it was quite a, an ordeal for us, and as a young person, it was quite impactful on me. Mm. Anyway, we, we the youngest came, and we accompanied her to the hospital, and she survived. So I, I was pretty happy with that. I thought that's a good day. Good for result, her. yeah. Good yeah. result, you know. And um, a week later, I got a letter from the father. Um, and I thought, oh, this will be interesting. So I opened it up, expecting, rightly wrong, expecting a thank you note. And what it was was a bill for the repairs to the door. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> oh, never mind the, uh, never mind the yeah. daughter's life, you say. Yeah. yeah. So, so, so that, for so me, that, that, that impact on me, and it's still today, I, you know, when I talk about it, I go, oh, it really kind of, wow, that was unexpected. Hmm. And, you know, this... this this uh, ringside seat in the life strip back and people being rational and irrational and not acting in a, in a way that you would expect to your own experience that was quite a mm. moment for me mm. um, so that was a that was a low point and yeah. there were lots of other experiences like that in my 30 year career but lots of high points as well and you know I, I was um, reflecting on another moment which was quite fun and it was when I was at the MCG as a young constable and Australia were 
batting in the, in a test, and I was working Bay 13. Well, Bay 13, for those of you who are my age, which is 56, it was quite a... Uh, a beer hall, you know, it was a rough <laughs> and ready. It was a great, it was a place where people went and had oh, yeah. fun, and and uh, you know, by ten o'clock, most people were pretty well pickled, and and um, it sort of went downhill from there. But um, I remember we went. Uh, I was on duty there, and at six o'clock in the morning, we were on parade, and the and the and the commanding officer was inspecting us to make sure we were dressed appropriately, and he said, "Now, guys, you know, the streakers are happening more and more often in the cricket and and at the AFL." Just be aware that there might be someone who, who could run onto the ground, but under no circumstances are you to run after that person because they might be quicker than you and you might embarrass the force. <laughs> I think you were pretty quick in your day. Yeah, well, I, was, I said to you, I was a pull-through for a rifle, but I was pretty fit. Um, but anyway, so sure enough, about, I think it was about 2 o'clock in the afternoon, this guy gets his kid off, jumps the fence, and the crowd's in uproar. You know, he runs towards the centre of the of the MCG, and Greg Chappell's on about 95, I think. So he's in the nervous 90s. And this guy, cigarette in hand, stark bollocking naked, jumps over the bowler's stumps, clears them, <laughs> thankfully. Would have been painful again. And then runs down <laughs> towards Greg Chappell. I'm not sure whether he was going to try and hug him or slap him on the back, but Greg Chappell was having none of it, and he tried to sort of hoist him over long arm with a magnificent hook <laughs> and it slapped him on the bum and we heard the slap from the outer and the crowd was going crazy, you know, <laughs> loving it. And this guy sort of didn't want to show any pain or embarrassment, so he sort of continued to run but with a bit of a limp. <laughs> <laughs> and then he ran back to the place, he'd, he'd jumped the fence and there I was waiting. Uh, and the crowd in Bay 13 is going absolutely crazy. So he jumped over the fence, and he was in a bad way. He had he had a third butt against such a big hematoma <laughs> from this Greg Chapel smack, you know. And anyway, so the crowd's going crazy. Like, oh, I better do something because he's stuck naked. So I took my police hat off and put it over his old fella. Right. And the crowd goes boo. I thought. Oh, what, what happens if he takes a leak in my hat? So I took my hat away, and of course the crowd goes, Ray! So I, I thought, oh no. So I put it back over him, and of course the crowd's reacting all the way up to the police rooms. The crowd's going crazy, you know. So they uh, had those fun moments, right? Mm. And uh, looking back, uh, you know, it was, it was a part of the great journey of, of, of my, my time as a police officer. Yeah. So when you finished, so why did you leave the force? Um, look, I uh, fundamentally, uh, I outgrew it. You know, when all my colleagues were studying criminal justice streams of uh, study, I was studying business and management. Right. And, and I thought that never had we asked as an organisation um, what our customers wanted of its police force. So, you know, we, I, I saw things like, uh, if your burglary was was under a thousand dollars about you, then you'd have to go to the police station. The police wouldn't come to your house. So you know, it occurred to me that ever since we got off the push bike and into cars, for example, we were distancing ourselves more and more from our customers, and the customer experience of policing and their notions of safety and and um, or feeling safe in a community. Right? That's an interesting notion. Same so, but I was thinking differently, very differently. Uh -huh. So, I, because of my business studies, I got involved with some fairly significant projects in policing, and that enable me to have a fairly rapid rise through the ranks to, to commissioned officer and I, in that role I got to see some very interesting uh, changes to the way policing was but fundamentally I didn't like the direction it was going right. as an organisation <clears throat> so um, 
it took a long time for me to leave, probably six or seven years. And in that time, you know, I became CEO of Diversity Work Australia and and that took me into a whole new area of awareness in terms of what my contribution could be because I was very aware that my contribution to community was through policing, but I had always felt that I could be doing something more, could be playing on a bigger stage, or could be doing more, engaging more with community and having a bigger impact. So, so contribution to community is a big thing for you, isn't it? It's certainly driven me for as long as I can remember. You know, my father, I grew up with this mantra, my father, who still influences me today, he turned 81 in February. Um, he said, as early as I can remember, he said, son, there are three types of people in this world. He said, there are people that watch what happened. There are people that uh, make things happen. And there are people that say what happened. He said, you need to be a person that makes things happen. So I took that mantra all the way through my, and still today. It's a great mantra. You know, I've always tried to be a person that makes things happen or creates opportunity or possibility. So I've always seen possibility. So, you know, in my policing career 30 years, I moved every two to three years from general operations to prosecutions, prosecuting in the courts. Mm. You know, then I went to licensing, gave me advice in a, in a sort of a, an undercover type role. Then I went back into prosecutions. Then I went back into general policing. Then I went into, into strategic development. So, I, and then project stuff. And so I, I was shifting every two to three years in roles. So I got this very broad experience. And that shaped me for what was to come when I left policing and moved into the corporate world. So um, my experience in Diversity Work Australia was very enriching and, and rewarding. You know, we're working with Indigenous people throughout Australia and getting them into workplaces and trying to um, uh, improve outcomes for them in, in terms of work, working with people with disabilities, getting them off welfare into work. So that was, that was a very rewarding time as, mm. as well. But it's also very challenging talking to organisations about why diversity is important. And, you know, I remember this is a story I used to tell people. Um, it was a story I went to... Um, uh, Darwin on an international police management program in, in 1995 and uh, it was a four week residential and um, part of our assessment for that was our ability to get on with people from different cultures and the Northern Territory University structured our groups so that we were very diverse and they would set up cameras and watch how we interacted and I'll never forget this one day we were in this room and there was this tabletop exercise of a small outback town complete with little people, little trucks you know, houses, and it was very detailed, but mm. quite quite compact. And in my group, there was a superintendent from Fiji, a sergeant from uh, Papua New Guinea. There was uh, three officers from the Philippines who had survived the Marcos coup. And one had been shot, one had been stabbed, and, you know, they had these incredible stories themselves. Um, and then I had a, a, a military police officer in my group, a West Australian um, police officer. And we're in this group, in this room, looking at this tabletop, and the instructor came in and said, OK, gentlemen, this is your task. You, you, we're going to give you a scenario, an emergency scenario. And when, when I finish talking, you'll have five minutes to develop an emergency response plan. Time starts now. So then they said, you've got a person on that water tower with a high-powered rifle. He's shot two people dead in this town. Over to you. How are you going to solve this problem? So at that time, this is the 90s, from my policing background, it, it was all about cordon, containment, control the situation, open up lines of communication and and work a solution forward from there. So I started off with that and straight away the Filipino officers folded their arms and just leant back. They were completely disengaged. 
And I, th- I thought, wow, I'm being assessed on how I include people in this conversation. So I said, okay, guys, well, what do you think? Well, they said, Sue, you've got it all wrong. See that bulldozer there? We're going to get that and knock the tower down, problem solved. <laughs> and and, and I, I, I found myself saying, but what about the shooter? Well, they looked at me and said, what about the shooter? What is taken care of. And so, so for me, that was a fantastic moment in, in, yeah. in the value of diversity because of the, the innovation it brings. Because mm. for years, we've been thinking about this is how we solve these problems. Mm. And then coming from a different background, they had a different solution. It wasn't the solution the group went with, but you know, it, was a, it was a different solution, right? So, for sure, so that was a bit of an aha moment for me. And, and, um, and then I took that sort of experience and that conversation forward in, in the diversity framework in the 2006-2007. And Which, then I went into consultancy. But then I created another entity called the Australian Institute for Workplace Behaviours, which is a nice little structure, which is our research arm. And, and we conducted the biggest private research in terms of workplace behaviours in Australia. We we actually got 15,000 people that contributed to this particular survey in every oh, state wow. and territory. That's pretty I wanted to find out what the risk factors were for people in organisations. So what were the early indicators where something was going to happen? Someone was going to tap someone on the back, on the backside inappropriately or tell a racial joke or, you know, these things that trip people up in businesses. I wanted to get to some early indicators rather than be in this reactive space. I wanted to get in the proactive space. So I, I, that research gave us a really useful audit tool that I could go into, into organisations and take a snapshot of of things and see what their health was, you know, in terms yep. of uh, culture and things like that. So, for example, we learned that organisations in in static malaise that weren't doing much, that was a high-risk area for people to be in because they got bored and would turn on each other. And, you know, there's, there's a great story about a ship in the Australian Navy that was in the conflict in the Gulf. And while they were in conflict and engaged in conflict, it was fantastic. They were all pulling together, moving. They had a clear goal and they were yep. pushing. The minute the ship turned around to come home, all hell broke loose and they just disintegrated into, you know. Did they make it home? They made it home, but they made it home. But there were all these problems uncovered. And, you know, this is just one of the issues the Defence Force was, was looking at. But, right. Um, and then in the other inspection, when you've got an organisation in rapid change, that's another high-risk area to be. Mm. So you, the healthiest place for a business to be is, you know, in this constant state of renewal that's almost energising and exciting and in this area of possibility and opportunity. And, and that's where we want organisations to be. That's, that's where they're going to get their greatest um, growth and, 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 that's, and health. And that's what you're currently... So I'm doing that. So, yeah. I'm doing that. You know, we, we're, we're just about to roll out some enterprise-level uh, training for a large um, organisation, and we've done that throughout Australia the last 10 years. That's quite rewarding. But another interest I've got is undercover tours. And yeah, George mentioned this, and I, I thought, yeah. this, you know, getting to this will be good. Yeah, so, yeah. you know, uh, Risk to Business, I love. It's great. I enjoy it. It's, it's a business that uh, is ticking along nicely. We can always do more but and that's about contribution in terms of my impact on organisations but I moved to Balmain five years ago when I met my new now wife and um, who, who, who is, is Naomi Simpson who is uh, somewhat famous <laughs> <laughs> she's amazing she's yeah she, people would know her on Shark Tank Australia yeah. it's just about the uh, series three is about to air so do you get um, oh that's Naomi's husband or do you, you know, what do you get? No, I get, well, who are you? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, right. I, I get, uh, because, you know, we... we, we are we you got, on the door list, mate? Yeah, exactly. You know, it's hard to be living in the shadow. It is, it is. It is you know, she's, she's an exceptional person. It's like living 
or standing next to someone who's a thousand watt globe, you know. Yeah, right. The energy is amazing, and you can't help but get infected by that. Uh, but yeah, there are occasions when we walk up to a place and there's welcoming <laughs> arms for the lady in red, and then yeah. I get left behind. I'm the driver. You've got the driver. Yeah, yeah, that's right. No, no, your, your, your mill's over there. You know. <laughs> Could you go and sit with the staff? <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. So, um, so you know, living in Balmain with Naomi, um, I knew my history as a migrant coming to Australia told me that the only really way to to feel connected with the places to learn about it and get involved with the place. So I thought, I need to know more about Balmain than anyone else in Balmain. Well, you picked a very colourful suburb. Yeah, so, yeah. you know, yeah. so I, I decided to... I'm, I'm going to go to that point, which is your album park at the end of Louisa Road, and I'm mm. then, then going to walk to Thames Street, Ferry Wharf. I'm going to find out as much as I can between those two points right. because I want to know the area I'm living oh, in. So that's how, you, that's how you started. So that's how I started. So it was, I was curious about the place I was living in, and I uncovered the most amazing stories. I bet. You know... I mean, it was the birthplace of Australia, yeah. Balmain, because yeah. before the, the, the current CBD, Balmain and Darling Street, they had ferries coming up from yeah. from Berrytees along Darling Street, and, yeah. and, and so trams going up Darling Street. And it was the it was the it was the centre of of Sydney, and then of course Australia grew from there. Yeah. So I'm fundamentally curious, always have been. So. You know, I learned about Darcy Dugan in, in 1956, oh, Darcy um, going to the Mort Bay Engineering Company, which is now Mort Bay Park. Yep. And it was the biggest engineering company in Australia at the time. And he went with a mate of his um, with Tommy Guns, and they tried to steal 12,000 quid in payroll because, you know, the payroll officer had gone up to Darling Street to the Commonwealth Bank and got his bag of all money and was walking down, well, driving down with his two bodyguards, and there was Darcy waiting. And uh, the payroll officer got out of the car and, and Darcy and his mate opened up with the gunfire and he got shot in the arm and he ran into the office and threw the sack of money in the safe and twisted the dial and said, that's it, that they can't get the money. So Darcy and his, and his, and his mate were frustrated and they proceeded to shoot up <laughs> the front of the old the Dry Dock Hotel. <laughs> right. And then they, then they went on the lamb for six days and, it, and they, they finally caught up with him six days later. But, you know, there's stories about... Uh, suffragettes who live in who 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 lived in the house that we bought in right, in right. Uh, Birchgrove, and we recently and she was an amazing woman, uh, Maybank Anderson. Wow. Um, you know Thomas Mort, the stories he came up with in that. Gee, area. maybe we'll have to get <coughs> so undercovertours.com.au. Yeah. Come along, we'll go for well, a walk. We'll definitely, uh, I, I we think... don't want to expose too many of the stories on air because no. otherwise people won't come along and. Uh, That's right. And, but we, and, we, and we take George, we do find there's a great coffee spot on the way. Well, and we end I, up with a beer in the pub. Well, I was not. I noticed that one of you, one of well, a few of your loves, um, resonate with me. Yeah. Uh, beer. Food. Oh, gee, we're, we're on the same page. Oops. <laughs> Oops. <laughs> yeah, and he loves to cook. Oh, yeah. Yeah, so I yeah. think, uh, I think uh, it's, it's really I, the only reason I keep him around. I'd love to get <laughs> Stu back, you back in for um, to talk more about the, uh, un, the undercover, undercover tours. Yeah. I think it's, I, I'm always amazed at how little people know about their own. Yeah, yeah. it's fascinating. In that one strip of three-hour walk, What the, the, the amount of information there... It's available, but you know I'm passionate about it. But I, my vision for that business is to be a, a tourist abroad and, and and doing undercover tours in other places. That'd be good. You know? Yeah. So yeah. are you transitioning then? Is that what you're saying? Look, you're, this you're, for for me, undercover tours was for me to learn about my 
local area, but not mm. a creator website, and people can book online and do all those things. It works. It'll, it all. So it what was that? What? What? How do they get in, co- in contact? Well, they can go to undercovertours.com.au and they can yep. send me a message, or they can book a book a, a walk, and away we go. And you can and you can also see that on our website as well. We'll put yeah. a link on yeah. sometime yeah. soon. Um, Highly recommended, people. <laughs> have you done the? Have you done the? Other? No, I haven't because Stu hasn't invited me yet. I, I can oh, under- he has, he has, but I couldn't make it. The I can understand moment. why. You know, it's like most businesses. You know, I, st- I thought, is this going to be a good idea? Is it going to fly? And you know, the first few walks were friends, family, relations, and the dog. Yeah, 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 yeah. He wasn't a paying customer. He takes more than he gives. <laughs> so, so let's bring all this together somehow. Yeah, yeah. And I'll ask mm. the question: What floats your boat? Yeah, it's a great question, and for me, it's about. Contribution, you know, you've, in, in earlier podcasts you've talked about happiness and and um, that being a process and a journey, and I absolutely uh, subscribe to that view, mm. that it's not a state. It's it's a, a, a way of being, a way of choosing mm. how you want to be and the things you do or don't do. You know, we can't control other people's behaviour, we can control our own. So what floats my boat is... Um, is contribution, uh, that's part of the pillar that brings happiness to me. The other part is the um, sense of purpose. If I have a clear sense of purpose, then um, I'm happier, you know, because I, um, I know what I'm doing and why I'm doing it. And some undercover tours, there was a purpose behind that, but it's actually yeah. becoming something more. But when you're in possibility and when you're creating possibility, it's a fantastically energising place to be mm. and all sorts yeah. of things come out of that serendipitous journey yeah. so and the other the final part for me is uh, all I've ever wanted is for one person who's planet to really get me right. to really understand me not just you know in this sort of intimate way but really understand my DNA and what floats my boat mm. and, and I've found that person so mm. for me it's that sort of it's that sort of tripod of of of, of purpose contribution and and that intimate sort of close connection Mm. with someone so life's good life is fantastic mm. life is fantastic and you know I'm at my worst when I'm, when I'm not living in possibility right that's when I feel flat yeah yeah you know yeah. but when I'm when I'm in possibility you know when you guys um, said oh well, look you know we'd like to talk to you I said well that's a great that's a great possibility what might come from that yeah and who knows who well knows? That's, that, that's pretty well how George and I started yeah. It, was, it was more about us having conversations at the surf club, yeah. and yeah. Um, and and already the the whole premise of the podcast is changing and evolving every time we do it. Mm. But you guys, are, you guys are writing history. You know, I was I was in America three years ago, and the Smithsonian were running a booth in Central Station where you could book a half hour to go in in there with someone you loved to tell. It's called StoryCorp. That's it, and mm. the, and they're recording this these these interviews in a digital medium for perpetuity. I think everyone has a, everyone has a great story. Yeah, everyone. everyone. And, and even the, the the stories that aren't that are tra- tragic usually have a lot of learning in Learn, them. Yeah, you know. And I think I think if we can get that out, uh, George and I are doing this purely for fun. It's not yep. a money thing. Um, yep. Who knows where it'll lead us to? Yeah. Um, and it certainly floats our boat. Doing this floats our boat. Yeah. I love talking to you, Stu. <laughs> yeah, I could talk underwater, George. Oh, we, we can indeed. <laughs> yeah, well, no, I, yeah. I, you know, I take your I take your point that that um, you know you when you live in possibility, things happen, and you seize opportunities because you see them. Yeah, 
Whereas when mm. you're not, when you're in this malaise, yep. you tend not to see opportunities and yeah. don't do anything. So, I mean, part of this, part of the reason why we're doing this podcast is to give people that hope mm. that if they, if they shift a little bit, shift their thinking a little bit, and live in what's possible today, yeah. do the things that they love, like you have segued into, you know, undercover tours. Yeah. They're the kind of things that create momentum, create movement, create positivity, and create create opportunities. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah, one thing's for certain: if you do nothing, nothing will change. <laughs> yeah, you know. And uh, so the only yeah. thing that changes, and you know this, George, the only thing that changes is the action we take, right? What's, so, yeah. What's so, that great John Lennon saying? Um, Life is what happens to you while you're busy making other plans. Yeah. Or he also said, "Chid you?" <laughs> That's why I love you, George. Because if anybody can come out with a, I'm the a dud joke, I'm the egg man. <laughs> you know the egg man. It's, by the way, it's not choo choo. Oh. <laughs> okay. I think yeah. it might be cuckoo cuckoo. <laughs> You're the rock star. So you've had what, far too many coffees this morning. Uh, yeah. Well, no. Yeah. Time well, to break out the whiskey. I think. So. Yeah. So let. So to finish off. Yes. We ask every person that we get in what their what their favorite song is or a song that we that you feel is appropriate for this <laughs> can interview I, can i just say it surprised me his choice surprised me I, yeah. it made him look more polished than i thought <laughs> <laughs> well it's funny see i constantly surprise people <laughs> yeah. i constantly surprise people yeah. it's funny because yeah. when i listened to it i, I um i hadn't met i hadn't met you at that yeah. point but i actually thought it it it, it made sense to me mm. Funnily enough, mm. I listened to it and I thought, "Yeah, that makes sense." Can I? Can you I? You know say what? I, I, what I, sorry, do you know? Yeah. Sure, but what, what I music for me has been such a big part of my life, mm. um, and I've got a very diverse, you know, interest in music from yeah. Hard Day's Night to, you know. I don't let, let's not get started on the Beatles. Yeah, you know, we'll but, be here forever. I know, <laughs> I know. But you know, I, I, I grew up. I'm a, I'm a product of the '60s, mm-hmm. and you know, I've got this. And listening to Radio Luxembourg and all that th- yeah, in the UK, yeah, you know. Yeah. I, I, so, I, um, the great movie Rock the Boat. That's you know? a great boat. That's uh, a great I grew movie, up with yeah. that. So I've got this very diverse uh, uh, sort of interest in music. But yeah. um, the reason I like this particular piece is because. What's sustained me through the highs and certainly the lows is music. So I, when I was feeling particularly at low points, I would go to music hmm. as a distraction and as a way of dealing with emotional issues that I may have been experiencing at the time. And, and it, it served me well. It sustained hmm. me and fed me. And this particular piece, I go to when I'm happy, I go to when I'm sad, and it's, it's a constant for me. Sounds like me with alcohol. <laughs> yeah, well, we didn't even talk about my well, single malt that, collection. He does that as well with the yeah, music. Yeah, yeah. So that's why that's why this piece it came straight to me when you asked me what's your favourite piece. Right, fantastic. Yeah. That's fantastic. Stu, on behalf of Brett, mate, I, I can't thank you enough. You've been most entertaining mm. and interesting, um, and I hope uh, our listeners got a lot out of it. But I think we're in line for for a second. A second podcast. Well, you know, I'm the chief storyteller. That's right. Yeah. We're going to cut you loose. <laughs> and if, yeah. if you believe that he was restrained this time around, we're going to cut you loose and you're going to tell all your stories. Does that mean we're going to have a couple of whiskeys well, and then... We'll go out the back and have a, have a coffee and leave him to it That's all great. by himself. Yeah. <laughs> and his mates on Facebook. Awesome. That'd thanks. be awesome. Thanks, Stu. Thank you very much. We really Thank you, gentlemen. It. Lovely to meet you both. Fantastic. Terrific. 
It's that time again where we talk about our sponsors. This is about the 400th take, listeners. <laughs> this is our, this is our um, for a male sponsor, Mungrel Joes. Yes, Mungrel Joes. So, hey, Brett, what keeps you going? I'm not sure what you're implying. I don't like where your mind's going with this one, Brett, but uh, without getting personal, there are many times I need a hit, and not from a bus. What keeps me going is a steaming hot cup of coffee, and not just any coffee. Ah, uh, you must be talking about Mungrel Joe's. Yeah, our proud sponsor. Yes, that deep, rich, tasty and fulfilling coffee that perks you up, puts lead in your pencil, makes you glisten and puts hairs on your chest. But what does it do for men? Boom, boom. <laughs> it brings out the mongrel in you. <laughs> God, seriously, folks. Seriously, folks. Mungrel Joe's. That's my line. No, That's your line. <laughs> mungrel Joe's is the best taste experience ever it's 100 percent australian and not only is it a performance coffee it's strong and smooth like me of course george <laughs> it's the greatest coffee on earth the world's greatest coffee is it earth. really <laughs> <laughs> yes it is jump online at mungrelejoes.com.au and give it a shot excuse the pun no 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 you didn't have to say that well it's you printed it on the page you're george. on you're on fire brett I am on. We fire. could have scratched that out. And just for our listeners to put put it put in a discount code, float your boat, and you will get a special discount on your first order. Remember that it's float your boat. One word. If you love coffee, you should try Mungle Joe's. I'm telling you, folks. Aside from this great script that George wrote, <laughs> and it was so obvious you were reading it. <laughs> yes, George, it was. <laughs> Anyway, <laughs> listeners, Mungrel Joe's, it's, it's the best. 